And I've titled this message, The Glory of God in His World and His Word. David writes, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord my rock, and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this precious word. Help us to see you and your glory in it. Help us to see the power that your word has and let the power of your word be at work in us to produce the glory that is seen in the transformation from sinner to saint. Amen. The scientist and author Carl Sagan once said in a PBS show with a sense of optimism, it's nice to think that there's someone out there who can help us. And what Sagan was doing is he was looking out at the vastness and the grandeur and the wonderment of the cosmos, of space, and he was hoping against hope that there was intelligent life out there. But unfortunately, Sagan concluded that there was no God, and one of the phrases that he's known for, and maybe you've heard it, is that the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. The truth is, God does exist, and he has personally revealed himself to mankind in unmistakable and undeniable ways. And in the 19th Psalm, King David David the psalmist, he's training and teaching both himself and the people of God how to perceive God's glory and how to respond to it. And this psalm has two divisions. God's glory revealed in his world, verses 1 to 6, and then God's glory 
revealed in his word, 7 to 14. We begin looking at the glory of God revealed in his world. David begins this word of, of, of instruction on how to worship by describing nature itself as, as someone who is a worshiper of God. And he uses this thing called, that, 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 uh, this communication device called anthropomorphization. And some of you are like, wow, what does that mean? And what, what that is is when you, attri- when you take something that is non-personal, you, t- you take a non-person, but you attribute personality to it. You give it human characteristics. And believe it or not, we've all done this. This is, it's a part, normal part of how we talk. If you've ever referred to your car, some of you uh, who are agrarian may have a tractor, and even the great engineer, Scotty, would refer to the enterprise as a she, as a person, when she said she can't take much more of this captain. That's, that's this device that I'm talking about. And, and we've all done it, attributing a sense of personhood, a sense of humanity to a non-human thing. And in in this text, David is doing that to nature, even though nature is not a person, doesn't have a personality, it does not have a will or a mind or a voice. David is presenting nature as a proclaimer, as a herald. And and, and this herald is, is telling a message that we need to hear. And you know, the media and the public had school books and secular opinion will tell us that the cosmos is the result of a, of a big bang, that the universe just big banged itself into existence, and that there is no God. But Scripture does a most remarkable thing in that it does not provide a defense or an apologetic for God's existence. When you turn to Genesis 1.1, does Scripture try to convince you that God is? Or does it just simply begin, in the beginning, God? It doesn't even try to convince you that God is. It just assumes, it, it presents God's being there as a given. And it's, it's such a given that Scripture says the only person who can conclude otherwise is what? The fool. Only a fool says in his heart there is no God. So the term that we use to describe this truth, that God's existence, that his, that his nature, that his power, that his being can be, can be seen just through natural observance, that it can be known naturally, we, we call that general revelation. And there are six aspects, six ways to look at that general revelation in, in the first half of this psalm. The first is that general revelation is unmistakable. General revelation is unmistakable. David uh, presents, well, let me say this. He, He presents that the heavens are declaring the glory of God and that their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. So he begins by drawing your attention to the heavens, to the expanse, to the sky. And I'm sure if David and the people of David's day, if, if they had Google, if they had the Internet, if they had uh, HD microscopes, they could look at uh, quasars and, and, and atoms and molecules and, and all the fine, detailed machinations of DNA, which are fascinating. 
and, and he could, you, you could look at that kind of stuff, and how could you deny the glory of God in such minute, detailed precision? But he doesn't go to the micro. David doesn't go to the micro. He goes to the macro observation of God's glory goes to the cosmos. He does this because the heavens and the expanse of the sky, and as we're going to see, the sun itself testifies to all men everywhere that God is. The cosmos declares that God is. And when you stop and you look up and you begin to think about the vastness of space and just how, how little, how little this tiny dust ball is in the grand scale of the universe, it doesn't take long at all before we begin to just marvel at the awe of it all. It doesn't take long for us to marvel at the power, at the creativity, at the precision that was absolutely necessary to hang everything in its place. Well, first to, to, make, to, to, to make everything and then hang it in its place, and then to keep everything functioning in the way that it's been functioning for millennia. You can't look at all that is and not say, God made all this. This is the unmistakable conclusion, and it takes a fool convinced in foolishness to arrive at any other conclusion. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, 20 and 21, he says, since the beginning of the world, his invisible attributes, his, his, his eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made. So that they are without excuse for even though they knew God, they didn't have to be convinced of God. They already knew God, but yet they did not honor him as God or give thanks because they or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. God's glory in general revelation is unmistakable. And it's unexcusable to not see that God made it. General revelation is also unceasing. Unceasing. It's not limited or confined to a particular time. David says that the he doesn't say the heavens did at one time declared or at one time said or they will say. David presents them using a present tense verb saying they are telling. So as long as the sky has been there, as long as the heavens have been there, they have been declaring the glory of God and the work of his hands. There's some more of that anthropomorphizing because God is spirit. He doesn't have hands, but hands are what we do things with. So God says that the heavens are the, are the work of God's hands, attributing uh, uh, humanity to God to, to, to convey meaning. So in, in addition to presenting the heavens as continually declaring the glory of God, David says in verse 2, day to day, pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge about the glory of God and his creation. I like that word, pouring forth. That this, this, this image is of, of, of a spring where there's all this water underground and the earth can't hold it back and the, the water's bubbling up. And, and the, it's, it's like the earth can't, can't contain the water and it just needs to come to the surface. 
It's, it, it's, it's as if to say that the cosmos has this thing it wants to tell you, and it can't hold it back any longer. And if you think certain preachers preach too long, let me tell you that nature is a much, much more long-winded preacher than you've ever had to endure. Because it preaches day after day after day and night after night. In fact, nature and the cosmos has been preaching this message since it was made. So we say that general revelation is unmistaken, it is unceasing, and it is also unspoken. Now, this may sound like a contradiction. Look at verse 3. It may sound like a contradiction because in verse 2 it just says that their speech goes out. But in verse 3 he says that there is no speech, that there are no words, that their voice is not heard. But this is, this is David's way of telling you that, that while nature is declaring, it is telling you something, it's not with human speech. And you know, for, for those of you who don't know, I work with uh, special needs students. And we have several, uh, several students who are verbally impaired, that they, 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 they're nonverbal, they can't speak. And uh, we have different things that we can equip them with, whether they're little um, tags with images on them and, and, and a caption, or some of them have an iPad with images, and when you press the image, it, the iPad speaks. And we, you know, we, we say, um, you know, Steve, use your voice. And he will press the button, and, and the iPad speaks for him. And so even though he doesn't have a speech here, he has a, he has a voice. And, and David is attributing the exact same thing to nature. And so nature speaks without speaking. And it's not bound to any one language or any one set of words or any voice of any one people group. And the fact that we can look around and we can see that all that is leads us to know that it came from somewhere, from someone, that there had to be a maker. And we can arrive at this conclusion naturally. We don't need anyone to tell us that. We don't need anyone to convince us of that. So God's revelation in, in, in the cosmos, it's unmistakable, it's unceasing, it's unspoken. And then verse 4, we see it's also universal. Universal. Despite not having speech, the voice of the cosmos declaring God's glory and the work of his hands goes out to all creation. David says that their line has gone out to all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. So, so God's revelation given to Israel didn't just stay in Israel. It went out to all the earth, to the end of the world. Now, general revelation is not limited to a particular place. It's everywhere. It's everywhere you look. It's everywhere you go. No person, no people group, no culture, no tongue, no tribe, no nation exempt is exempt from being exposed to the glory of God in the cosmos. Think about that. No one's exempt. Why is this? Because not only have all men and all peoples and tongues and tribes of nations been exposed to the glory of the cosmos, who hasn't gone out on a starlit night and looked up at all the stars and just be amazed? Who hasn't done that? 
And who hasn't seen the glory of of God in the Son? We see that God's glory is also undiminished in general revelation. The last line in verse 4 and continuing into verse 5, David brings up the Son. General revelation is is undiminished, and that's to say that there's there's a quality, there is a bravado with which the Son itself is declaring and telling and speaking of the glory of God and that it doesn't get any stronger, it doesn't get any weaker, it doesn't wax, it doesn't wane, but it is constant. And David speaks of the Son as if something that, as a thing that God has placed in the sky in the same way that a child might place a balloon inside of a tent. And understand, David isn't an astronomist, he doesn't have a telescope, and so, you know, some people may get hooked up when David says that the sun is following its circuit around the earth. We know today that the earth is actually following its circuit around the sun, but from David's perspective, he, the point is not which is orbiting which. The point is, is David knows the one who put the sun where it is, and David knows the one who is causing the sun to do what the sun is doing. That's the point. And that the sun, as it runs its course, it is a perpetual, it is a constant, it is a daily reminder to the glory of God. And You know, I, I have to exhort you guys, I have to exhort you, church, to forget for a second that you are in Washington, where the sun, it, it, the sun feels that every day is a Monday. And this ink comes out like this, and I don't really want to come out. Because there, you know, the, the clouds and the moisture, and forget that you're in Washington. Pretend that you're in California. Well, no, not California. Um, it, I read this in, a, in, in Ellicott's commentary. And I, he, he explains this perfectly. The suddenness of the oriental sunrise is finally caught in the image of the uplifted tent curtain and the appearance of the radiant hero, and that's the sun. This want or, or lack of twilight, this absence of silent preparation for the supreme moment, it distinguishes eastern songs of sunrise from the poetry of the West. There are no musterings of mute companies of changeful clouds, no avant couriers of the light, no gray lines fretting the clouds as messengers of day. He says, unheralded, Unannounced, the sun leaps forth in all of its splendor. A young bridegroom with the joy of the wedding still on his face. A hero leaping forth on his past of conquest and glory. And in Israel, where there are no clouds, the sun, you know, if you look on the horizon, it's dark, it's dark, it's dark, it's day. There's a certain sense in which the sun comes out and goes, ta-da! You know, it, uh, I, I think of, um, you know, in this image of the sun coming out, it, the, the image of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a newly married man uh, and the joy that he has on his face, this image of a runner sprinting to that finish line. And it, it is a joy that is tangible. It is a joy that cannot be restrained. It is a glory that is felt by all. And some of you, I imagine, do we have any Patriots fans in here? None? Does anybody know a Patriots? Okay, uh, you shall remain unnamed. Uh, 
was there not certain joy that was tangible and undeniable in the fourth quarter of last week? That, that, that image, that sense of undeniable, tangible joy and radiance and tadaness is what is seen in the sun. It's what is seen in God's creation. It is God's glory in what he has made and how he has made it and how he sustains it, it does not diminish. And lastly, we see that God's general revelation is unresting. It is unresting, just as that groom is beaming all the way up to that altar, not once taking his eyes off his bride, and just as that sprinter is running at 110% from start to finish, not slowing down, not getting distracted in, in the least bit. In the same way, the sun rises from one horizon and it runs its course to the, to the end, to the other horizon, and it doesn't allow himself to be obscured by clouds. Again, please forget you're in Washington where clouds are abundant. God's glory like the sun's heat. Look at the end of verse 6. God's glory is felt and received. And though it is suppressed, it is understood by all. God's glory is felt by all day after day after day. Now, General revelation, the, the, the glory of God and, the, and things that we can glean about God as seen as in his creation. It's good and it's great and it is glorious, but general revelation has its limitations. There is, a, there is an end to it, or an extent to which it can go. Paul in Romans one twenty specifically tells us that God has made his power and his divine nature evident to man through which is made. But you know what? There is more to worship God for than just the fact that he made everything and the fact that he is. There are more reasons to worship God. There are, there are greater acts for which God deserves to be worshipped. And for that, we go to special revelation. We go to special revelation because general revelation does not and it cannot reveal the character of God. It can't reveal his character or his person or his promises or his wisdoms or his warnings or the gospel, the offer of forgiveness of sins and pardon and reconciliation. Now, for, for that knowledge, for that message, for that understanding, Man must, he must receive the special act of God entering into, into creation and, and giving his spirit-inspired revelation to the prophets, to the apostles, so that we can know and receive and appropriate, so that we can make, our, so that we can make the truths of God in the scriptures our own truths and that we can walk in them. We need special revelation for that. Notice that in the first six verses, general revelation, uh, David says, expresses the glory of God 
In the Hebrew, this is his title. This is Elohim. This is referring to the fact that he is the creator God. He is the maker God. But what does David say in verse 7? Does he call God God? Now there's a, there's a shift, and David now calls him Yahweh. The, the law of Yahweh is perfect, and, and that's different because God points to his title. He is the maker, but Yahweh is God's covenant name. It is his personal name. It is the name that he gives God, his own people when he's revealing himself, when he's drawing near to them, when he's making himself known. So what we can deduce about God in, in creation, it's good. But his special revelation, his, his scripture, his word is so much better. So we turn to, to verses 7 to 14. God's glory revealed in his word. And there's an abrupt shift. That the, and this is intentional by David. He changes his style. He changes his language and, and the content. And some people get really hooked up on this, and they, they, they say, this has to be two psalms. He, David had to write verses 1 to 6 at, early in his life, and then he came along later and, and added the second part. But the shift is designed to, to transition you, the reader, from the good to the better. The shift is intentional. And it, David wants you to see that it is better and that it is more profitable to you than general revelation. I mean, the, 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 the most glorious thing, the, the pinnacle of creation, the sun, is, is, is good and it has its impact on the earth, but the impact of the sun fails in comparison to the impact of God's word in the lives of his people. And to explain this, he, David explains that the Torah of Yahweh, the word of God, is perfect, verses 7 and 9 that it is precious, verse 10, and that it is powerful, verses 11 to 14. Remember, so, so, so the thesis for, the, for this is that general revelation is good, special revelation is better. Now let's look at this. Special revelation is perfect. The word of the Lord is perfect, verses 7 to 9 says that the law, the law of Yahweh, the, the, the law of the Lord is perfect. The, and this word law, it can be used differently in the, in the Bible. Law normally points to the law of Moses, and it can be narrowed down to an individual command or an individual teaching. It can, be, it can refer to the law given at Sinai. It can refer to the first five books of, the, uh, of Moses. It can even be expand and refer to larger portions of the Old Testament. But because David has a purpose in this, and he's, he's showing a contrast between general and, and special revelation, I think it's fair to say he's talking about the Scripture, the, the law of Moses, because that would have been the bulk of what he had. Remember, at this time in history, um, the prophets haven't been written yet, and David is writing the Psalms. There was a couple that have been written before then and Solomon isn't alive yet to have written Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or Song of Solomon so the law is the bulk the the, Mos- the books of Moses are the bulk of what David has and the Holman 
And, but for what we can do today, I think we can apply it to the totality of Scripture. In the Holman Bible, if any of you have that, that, the Holman Bible captures this idea and it translates the law as the teaching of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. So, so we could say whatever God has said, whatever God has revealed to us, that is perfect. And that word perfect, it, mean, it means flawless, it means without error, without imperfection, unimpaired, whole, adequate, complete. What creation reveals about God is good, but what Scripture revealed is not the least bit, not in any way lacking one thing. And what does it do in its perfection? Well, verse 7, it revives or it restores the soul. And what a blessed thought it is to know that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, where you are, what predicament you're in, what, no matter what waywardness has led you to be in that predicament, that the word of the Lord is adequate and sufficient, able to meet your need and restore your soul. Restored souls is the greatest need that we have, and the word of God is perfect to do that. Amen? In addition to re- restoring the soul, verse 7 continues, it teaches the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, testimony it, it, it can be translated covenant, and it, it carries a sense of legality to what has been said. And, and it is, David says that it is sure, it, meaning it's stable, it's solid, it's reliable, it's trustworthy. And trustworthy to do what? Well, make the, the simple wise. And, and, and I hear you ask, what, who is the simple person? Well, get this. The word in the Hebrew literally means open door. And it's referring to the mind. So the open-minded person. And what is absolutely remarkable is that in our culture, isn't having an open mind something to be lauded? Isn't, isn't that something, isn't that a something that you respect in a person if they have an open mind. It's something that we, that we desire people to, to have, but what the scripture implies is that someone who has an open mind is a fool. Why? Because he doesn't have the skill. Uh, uh, wisdom, it, 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 remember, is presented in scripture as, uh, wisdom is presented as skillful Living, it is, uh, it is to be skillful in how you live, skillful in the choices that we make. And the idea of the simple person is that he lacks, he, he, he's a naive person who lacks the skill to make good and sound decisions. He, he, he's this man or woman who bumbles along and he's, they are constantly stumbling over the challenges of life because they are not suited to adapt to them. He, they're not suited to, to live with skill. That's the simple person. That's the naive 
person. He, this is somebody who lives their life the way a toddler walks, without skill. The testimony of Yahweh has the capability to teach good instruction and sound knowledge to the naive and to the undisciplined so that they become skilled and adept in living. I don't believe you. I need that. I need that. Third, it re- rejoices the heart. David says the statutes and precepts of the Lord are right. And this word uh, statute or precept, it would bring to mind uh, an official, somebody in power, uh, somebody who, who makes appointments, makes judgments because of the, 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 the authority that their position grants them. There's authority in this word. It's, a, it, it's dogmatic. So when, when, when God lays down the statutes, this is how things are. There's an oomph behind it. And what is the dogmatic decrees of the Lord produce? Joy. Joy. The, the law of God, the statutes of God produces joy. And I say, the word of God says, rather, yes. Living in obedience to the word of God, it produces joy in the believer. There is joy to be had when we know that our actions and our conduct, that they're pleasing to those around us. And whether it's our spouse, whether it is our children or our employer or our neighbor, there is joy to be had when we live amicably, when we live peacefully, and we live lovingly with those around us and how how much how could it not be much more so than when we live in a way that is pleasing to our maker and our redeemer and our savior and our lord the statutes of the lord produce joy in the heart fourth it enlightens the eyes david says the commandment of the lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And there's no one commandment that I think he has in mind. It's the whole of God's commandment. And he says that they're pure, that they are without blemish, they're spotless, they're without fault, they're without imperfection, they're without pollution. And this is similar to, to making the the simple wise, enlightening the eyes. It's it's giving, granting them superior sight, and I think that it has a spiritual sense to it. It's giving them spiritual sight. So David says, the commandments of the Lord give you and me and God's people the ability to make spiritual, uh, to, to have spiritual understanding, to make the right spiritual choices that the unbeliever cannot make because he is unspiritual, because his eyes are unenlightened. And I think, Paul captures this this thought in Ephesians 5.15 when he says, I urge you to walk circumspectly or, or walk with discernment, not being unwise, but being wise because the days are evil. Do, do we live in an evil day? Do we live in a day where it's important to act with, to, to, to conduct ourselves with wisdom? And then, David adds that the word of God rever- rever- uh, reverences the spirit. 
verses, verse 9. Instead of coming up with another synonym, he comes up with what the word of God produces. He comes up with what the effect is, and he says the fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord is clean. And, uh, and the idea is uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, if something was unclean, it was unfit to be in God's presence. It, uh, it was defiled, it was unsuitable, and it would be rejected and be thrown away, and something that was clean would be brought in. So when God's word is clean, it, it doesn't fade away, it's not tossed away, it doesn't need, and because it up, it's, it's uh, enduring, it doesn't need to be upgraded, like, like the latest Windows uh, operating system. It, it, it's the same word that was given back then, it has endured to this day, and just as Jesus says, in Matthew 24:35, though heaven and earth will pass away, what? His words will never pass away. Why? Because it endures. And that causes reverence in the, in the, spirit, in the heart. And then in verse 9, he continues, the judgments of the Lord are true. The judgments, or your, your translation may say ruling, and we can look at the Ten Commandments as, as uh, standard principles. Uh, uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 lists the Ten Commandments. And then uh, the bulk of Deuteronomy, the rest of Deuteronomy is, uh, as we said in our equip a couple months ago, that Deuteronomy is a sermon. It is, it is a, a, a preaching based on the Ten Commandments. And what Moses does is he he, he gives these rulings, he gives these judgments that show how the principles of the Ten Commandments are applied in everyday life. And David says, these, the judgments, the rulings of God, how the Word of God applies specifically in your life in this situation and that situation, that they are true, that they are faithful, reliable, they coincide with reality, and that's why he says that they are righteous. Righteousness is, 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 is some, is, is points to that which is correspondent to a standard. And when we're talking about God's standard, his standard is truth. So it, they are righteous because they coincide with truth. Now, as, we've gone, as I've drug you through that, some of you may go, wow. All these synonyms, and you know, you have the you have the statute over here, and precept over here, and you have to line up this synonym with this uh, pr- uh, produce, and this with that, and I better not get these mixed up. What was what was that one again? Which one? No, that, that's not the point. That's not the point because David is he, he's he's you know he he's using his artistic expression, and he's he's piling everything up. He's piling everything up uh, because he loves the word of God and he loves what it is and he loves what it does. And what David wants from me and for you is to read through and to see and to know and believe that God's perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true, soul-restoring, joy and uh, wisdom-producing, enduring, righteous word is utterly, completely, unequivocal unequivocally perfect. That's a mouthful, but that's what David wants from me and from you. 
to see that the word of God, it does, it is all these things and it does all these things and it is perfect. And if you see this, if you appropriate this for yourself, if you take this truth and you, 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 you make it your own and you possess it, you will say with David, how precious is the word of God. I need to get it in me. And that's, that's what he's saying in verse 10. Look at that. I need the word of God and I have an unrelenting appetite for it. And he uses two expressions to show just how 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 valuable and how how uh, tasty it is, as it were. In verse ten, he says they are more desirable than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It is. The word of God is so good. It is so valuable to me. It is so sweet to me because I know what it is and I know what it does. I know what it does for me. I know what it does in me. I know what it does through me. It is a treasure of incomparable quality and there is absolutely nothing like it in life. Nothing can be compared to the word of God. It is more desirable than gold. It is sweeter than honey. And this this blew me away. Um, does everyone's Bible say, uh, verse 10, that they are more desirable? Does anyone have a different rendering? Pre- the word is lust or covet. How covetable. How, not lustful, but David is saying, You ought to covet. You ought to lust after the word of God. There ought to be a holy, righteous, strong desire to get the word of God. That's what David's saying. There ought to be a holy, righteous, lusting after the word of God. It is so good. It is so valuable. It is so sweet is desirable and the word of god that reveals god's truth to his people it is perfect and it is precious and then verses 11 to 14 we see that it is powerful it is powerful and this is the final explanation for why david uh, that, that david gives for why it is better why it is superior than general revelation and that it it trains and equips the man and the woman of God to worship the Lord and and do you see that this is where the rubber hits the road this is where it gets practical the the sun and the moon and the stars and the rest of creation are telling of the glory of God simply by their uh, their God-given placement and and doing their God-given functions and the scripture is telling the glory of God by their, by its God-breathed grammar, you know, by, by, by the nouns and the verbs and uh, the, the placement of the words. And what David wants is the glory of God to be revealed in his own life as God works through his word to change David. That is where it's got to hit us like a ton of bricks. 
that is where the power of God is being revealed in day-to-day life. What a miracle is conversion and daily repentance. We see, verse 11, that the power of God in the Scripture is revealed by rebuking sin. Verse 11, it rebukes sin. David says, moreover, by them, all those synonyms that we that, we, that I, I delicately escorted you through, by them your servant is warned. And this is David's first mention of himself. And when he comes onto the stage, he's not the exalted king. He's the lowly servant. And this is how really anybody but the king would present himself when he comes before the king. And he understands the authority and the weight of the word of the decree of his Lord. And he understands that there's a consequence for breaking the word of his Lord. And yet, by the word of the Lord, David is warned what not to do. And that's what the law does. That's what the law does. It, it confronts us when, when we are faced with sin, when we have the opportunity to sin. And it's, the law says, don't do that. That is not right. Do not do that. Pursuing this lawless pleasure will displease the Lord. Do not do that. Doing this or doing that will impair, it will, it will obfuscate, it will mess up your worship with your maker. Don't do that. And David understands there's also a reward to complying with the word of God, with the word of his sovereign. He continues in verse 11. Not only is he warned, he is, there is great reward in keeping them. So the word of God reveals or uh, rebukes sin, it also reveals sin. Scripture reveals sin. David, he, he asks this rhetorically, who can discern his errors? Well, by asking that rhetorically, he's, he's betraying his own sinfulness because exposure to the law of God reveals his sinfulness. And, and Paul says in Romans 7, 7, that had it not been for the law, had it not been for the command, thou shalt not covet, he would never have known how great a coveter he was. And that's, you, you've heard the saying, you don't know how much you, you love something or appreciate something until it's taken away. That's what the law does. It has a way of knowing exactly the idols of our heart and the things that are our heart and our flesh crave after, and it's, it prohibits it. It says, don't do that. Or it says, the thing, it, it, or the things that we don't want to do, it says, do this. And when we see our shortcomings in our failure to obey the law, we understand how sinful we are. And that is God's means. It is his tool to reveal our sin to us. That's the purpose of the law which is Paul's argument in Romans. And so he, David, uh, confessing his sin, confessing that this is such a difficult task, he does what God's people ought to do. He prays for mercy. He begs for mercy. Acquit me of hidden guilt. He's saying, Lord, I don't know how bad I really am, but you do. Have mercy on me. Show me how to walk. Lead me. Guide me. Show me how to behave. Take this sin and hurl it far from me and shepherd me through your scripture. 
help me to be righteous like you. That's David's prayer in this. That's, and that is the perfect prayer upon learning how sinful we are. The law rebukes sin. The law reveals sin. And then lastly, the law restrains sin. Verses 13 to 14. David, David's prayer continues. He says, Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. And this is uh, in, in contrast to the hidden sins in verse uh, uh, 12. This is, the, this is sinning with one's wide, eyes wide open. This is arrogant sins. This is uh, knowing uh, knowledgeable sins. And, and do, we, do God's people ever sin willfully? Yes. David knows the temptation. He knows the, 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 the drawing allure, the enslaving power of sin, and that's why he prays what he prays in the next line. Let them not rule or govern me. Let them not rule over me. And, and, and I have to ask, what is, David, what is David's fear? What is he afraid of? What is his concern? And that it is, if his sin was allowed to be unrebuked and unrevealed and unrestrained, that he, if his sin was allowed to take deep root in his soul, that he would become steeped in guilt and he would be guilty of great transgression, or your translation may say great rebellion. That is David's fear. And that's this is apostasy, and this is this is all of those this is those who have thrown off all restraint. They have thrown off and acquitted themselves of any concern, and they 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 they've thrown off any semblance of following the Lord. They don't care anymore, and they insist that they are the captains of their own destinies. They don't care what God has said. Their hearts have grown stone cold to God's warnings and the invitation to be forgiven in Christ. David, I, I'm sure David saw this in King Saul. You remember how remember the madman that Saul became as as the king as the crown was being taken from him? The sins that he that he allowed himself to do and his desire to, to clutch onto that crown. You remember that? I think David also saw this in his sons Amnon and Absalom. These men could not let their sin go. They couldn't let their sin go. And David knew well what happens if sin is allowed to take root and to bear its fruit. And he pleads with Yahweh, keep me from that. And beloved, I... I don't want you to doubt your salvation in the Lord. That is not the intent. But I want you to see that the Lord uses the fear of of apostasy. He uses the fear and the concern of sin and rebellion to keep you from it. It is a healthy it is profitable. It is an altogether good thing for you as God's child to have a, a, a concern or a fear in displeasing the Lord with unrepentant sin. That is a good thing. 
David is teaching the people of God in this, in this psalm that the scripture is powerful to keep them from sin and to keep them from rebellion. And we must appropriate the great value and treasure of scripture and to, to, to make its truths our own and, and appropriate that quality and that desirability and that lust of the scriptures for ourselves. It's just as a starving man would just cease to put, throw himself upon the honeycomb. And David closes with these words. He says, let the words of my mouth, let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David knows the glory of God that 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 he can see in creation and and that it is seen in the perfect and the precious and the powerful scripture. And now because he loves the Lord and he has placed the full weight of his hope and his trust and his expectation in the stability of Yahweh the rock and in the salvation of Yahweh the redeemer. He desperately wants everything that he does and everything that he thinks and everything that he says to be wholly acceptable, to be good and pleasing to his Lord. That is the heart of a worshiper. And in teaching us how to worship God, that is what David wants us to glean. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are the immortal, the un- the invisible, the unchanging, the all-wise God. And you've given us a glimpse of your power and your creativity through the things that you have made. In the, in, in, in you've revealed these things in your creation and we're reminded every day as the sun rises and runs its course. You've You've done even more by revealing yourself and making yourself known through your awesome, perfect, precious, powerful word. The word that reveals your holiness, your majesty, your kindness, your mercy, and your grace. You've also revealed, you've graciously revealed our sinfulness and then You didn't leave us there, but you revealed Christ to us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the blessed hope that we have in your precious, beloved Son. The promise that he would never leave us, he would never forsake us, and that he is right now building a place, a home for us. And the true uh, promise that he would one day return for his church and that we would dwell with him and with you forever. What a blessed, blessed hope. And we thank you that your word, your precious, powerful, perfect word reveals these truths to us. Glory be to you, Lord. Amen.